0: It's time for The Chip Race. Hello and welcome to The Chip Race, Ireland's weekly poker podcast. I'm your host David Lappin alongside Darrow Kearney and tonight we have an exclusive interview with the biggest winner in the history of Irish poker, Andy Black. Fergal Nealon sits down for yet another engrossing conversation with one of the characters of the Irish poker scene, this time with school teacher and poker veteran Annette O'Carroll and Darrow Kearney raises the bar with his most difficult strategy bit to date. But first... We're joined now on the line by International Poker Open Tournament Director Stephen McLean. Stephen, last Thursday Full Tilt announced their headline sponsorship of the IPO tour. What impact do you think Full Tilt's involvement will have on the event?
1: Um, on, on the IPO, Full Tilt are going to give us worldwide exposure. They are They're opening up a lot of avenues for me already to be able to promote on poker forums in all sorts of different locations, you know, where player bases are around Europe and other places we haven't been able to reach um, in previous years. Just they have existing relationships with an awful lot of different poker communities. Um, they have um, like a really strong presence in in other countries as well that the IPO hasn't been that popular in. So Germany, um, Scandinavian countries, you know, locations like that. I'm really hoping that that it gives us a really strong brand in those those locations and that we can bring players to the IPO and bring, bring players to Dublin in October, basically. And then obviously just the, the, the major effect is obviously, um, like for, for just such a huge poker room. And um, like last night we had 4,500 people playing in, in one of the, the free buy satellites, you know, so just generating a lot of liquidity in the online satellites and, and stuff like that, and I'm just, I'm just really excited.
2: Yeah, it should be very good. And I know you're organising, in addition to the IPO itself, an IPO tour this year. Where will the IPO, tour, IPO tour be making stops?
1: And um, so we're starting off next month in Bray. Uh, we're like, we're going to, um, in May, we're we're heading for the IPO Bray, and um, it's a lovely casino. I know couple of people, a couple of the Irish guys have been making a couple of jokes about Bray, but actually... <laughs> Star, What's wrong with Star, Bray? <laughs> I love it, actually. And the Star Casino, man, you want to see that they're they're completely renovating a huge new poker room. and um, They had planned this now to do it at some stage this year. But when I started talking about, oh, we can do an event there, and you know, going in saying we'll do a small-ish event or whatever, they were just like, okay, we'll bring forward all the plans and everything like that. So the, what the players are going to get once they step inside the door there, I think they're going to be really happy... And it's a good location for the southeast. The southeast doesn't get enough poker events, you know. Wexford, those, those kind of locations. Like, it's a very easy hop up to Bray, and obviously then for Dublin players and and anyone that's near the M50. Yeah, so um, like the Doville of Dublin. Yeah, kind of. That's what we're <laughs> trying to create, you know, or the DTD. It like it's it's a little bit away from everything, but it's, sure. um, it's all good. Yeah. So just to hammer through the the schedule for this year, it's all up on on the full tilt page. But um, so May we're in in Bray. In July we're going to the Macau and Cork. Connie's just got a, a, a great schedule put together for live satellites. He, he's going to have a lot of live qualifiers. And I think that's that's going to be a great event. August then, we're over in the UK actually two weeks in a row. So 21st to the 23rd, we're going to the IPO Newcastle in Aspers. Um, just a fantastic location. Great atmosphere in the casino. And, and we'll have a good group of Irish players traveling over there as well. It's right in Chinatown as well and everything like that. And then we're going to the Hippodrome this year for the IPO London. Um, that's a week later. It's just the way the, the dates fell this year. We're, we have them a week after each other in August. September, we're back to Killarney, um, so 18th to the 20th of September. October is IPO Dublin. That's the big one. Um, and then November, we have announced IPO Limerick, and from there, December and every month thereafter, we will have an IPO event, but we're, we're just going to announce them and, and plan them this summer and, and get them out there as soon as we can.
0: Well, that's an amazing um, schedule, Steve. Uh, you, you mentioned there the Dublin main event. Last year, you got a staggering 1,650 entries, I think it was, for the event. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk recently, live poker struggling a little bit of late. Do you think hitting those sorts of numbers again is likely this year?
1: I, I really do, and I, I'm in my old age i'm i'm becoming you know i'm becoming more realistic about my predictions of fields and stuff like that you know <laughs> <laughs> trying to promote events you know i'm i'm always going to say oh yeah we're going to get loads of players but um i genuinely feel we're i, I don't want to be s- stuck to predictions but uh, but i would i wouldn't be happy this year if we didn't hit 2000 players um so that's you know that that's for dublin just me on a personal note not 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 um, not trying to be held to that figure or anything like that, but certainly we're going to beat last year's field. Um, you know it, it's as I said, like the IPO is the IPO Dublin. Just it, it, for a lot of people, it's their first ever really big competitive poker festival, poker tournament. The guys that come every year, they're coming every year, and they're going to continue to come. And we're just going to open. We're opening up to so many new players this year, in addition to those guys. That um, the atmosphere Everything is going to It's going to be a lot of fun this year Yeah it's a,
2: it's a really unique tournament In terms of the the people Who come to it Like a lot of people Who literally That's the their, their big tournament Of the year uh, I know it's been a re-entry before And it's a re-entry again this year How do you think The fact that it is a re-entry Actually affects the tournament itself
1: I don't think it has a huge effect On, on a player's strategy Or anything like that Especially with maximum Three bullets so over um, a number of starting days, every individual player, the max they can spend is is now $750. Um, so, you know, I don't I don't believe we're squeezing out the guys who only have one bullet. Sure, it's still not
0: too big an yeah. outlay, I guess is what you're saying. Um, yeah. fi- finally, and I guess this is a slightly more maybe controversial question, but, you know, it is a concern mm. at the moment that both Boyles and Paddy seem to be incrementally pulling out of poker in Ireland. Do you see this as something to be worried about, or is this just a natural changing of the guard?
1: Yeah. Okay. Like definitely a good, a, a very interesting question. And personally, I've, I've worked with Boil Poker for and Boil Sports for over seven years in the past and, and Paddy Power um, on the Irish Open last year for six months. I, I hope I can continue to have a good relationship with with those companies. So I can't really say anything that is anyway, you know, I, I am. Um, so I, I don't think there is, a, a, there's, there's certainly a change it, that's well-publicized. So Boyle Poker are moving their whole e-gaming section. Um, it's probably something to do with the tax changes that are taking place here in Ireland. Paddy Power similarly, um, you know, some of their decisions maybe are are associated with what their costs are, what their competitors, you know, tax rates, that the tax rates that the competitors are paying, all that kind of stuff That's that are corporate decisions, I suppose. From a player's point of view, I don't think that um, um players are going to suffer too much in terms of live or online poker. That Paddy Power's and Boyle's in my my personal opinion their biggest problem is they're on the iPoker network and um that's that's you know as players know it 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 has been in decline although it is a good network in terms of um punters coming on playing poker trying poker for the first time introducing people to poker and um, i think it's well known that you know the the problems that iPoker have so the guys there are constantly struggling with with their network problems as much as anything else, you know.
2: Yeah, I know from talking. I know from talking to Irish players, a lot of them, to be honest, have stopped playing on iPoker because of the ongoing problems with iPoker, which are completely outside of the control of obviously Boyles and Paddy and the other skins. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I think I think you're to be. It's it's a positive development that we are at least getting a a, a major international site in like Full Tilt, and mm. I, d- I definitely give you credit for you know. Dealing with the reality that Boyles uh, were were pulling out and and getting a new um, major sponsor.
1: Thanks, Darry. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely, like, I'm delighted. And, obviously, things have changed this year. I know that players, um, there was some reaction on the forums and that kind of stuff. But, like, again, yeah, we have a major worldwide brand now who are also an Irish company. Like, Full Tilt, all the guys I'm working with in here, just really impressed with with everybody here. Um, And, you know, it's it's something that we can be proud of that we have in, you know, a, a really global brand here in Dublin and that um, has reach all over the world, you know?
0: Yeah, well, look, I for one would certainly say, you know, Full Tilt have had their issues over the last few years but it's great mm. you know with them having moved over to their uh, their table games uh, as maybe being one of their focuses it's great to see the word poker go back into that Full Tilt brand yes. and with what you're doing I think that's, that's a really encouraging sign listen thank you so much for joining us today I really appreciate that Stephen great to talk to you you're a man for getting out the big field so I expect another big field at that IPO tour
1: hope so thanks a million guys cheers it's
3: time for Dara Davey with the news thanks Dave the Sunday headlines were led by English online beast Scott Agro Santos-Murchison, who outright won the Sunday Million for $194,000 and change last night. M Hawk 1 finished the night as Ireland's biggest winner, grabbing third place in the bigger 109 for just under $24,000. Sham one two three three two one finished in fourth place in the bigger 162 for $16,300. On the felt over the weekend, Emmett Davis and Colin Hanlon both continued their strong starts to 2015 by winning the 60 Max in Curlow and the Boyle Poker one day special in the Regency Hotel respectively, Emmett winning €10,000 and Colum winning €6,450. This is both Emmett and Column's second wins of the year. In the UK, former Irish Open champion James Mitchell won the GUKPT Edinburgh for just under £34,000. Finally, in a very sad note, the Irish poker community lost an absolute gentleman yesterday with the passing of Femi for Kinley. Femi won the inaugural UKIPT Cullerny and was a fixture on the scene for many years. All of our thoughts here are with his family and friends.
0: Yeah, Dara, just to pick up on on, on that news of Femi, obviously awful news. Everyone's thoughts here are, are with his family. Um, um, terrible with... story to hear uh, just last night.
3: Yeah, I only found out this morning and I've talked to Femi a bunch and I was really upset when I heard it's devastating news. He was very young and this is horrific.
0: Yeah, just 31 years of age. Well, look, our, our thoughts are out there. Um Amazing result, again, for Margerison, uh, Agro Santos. I know he's a great pal of our, our pal, Kevin Killeen. Uh, they they talk a lot of strategy together. No, no surprise then that they're all beasting it up. Um, not even his, well, 194k, not even his best result in in the, in the recent past. He's mm. had two WCOOP results.
3: Yeah, one of the WCOOP results was for like a quarter million. <laughs> so this is just another day in the office for him, yeah. I guess. It's really amazing mm. stuff. He's so much, just winning so much right now. He's and
0: he's a cash game guy, so God knows what he's doing there as well. <laughs> it's pretty sick. Here. yeah on the irish front amazing news for for emmet um, he obviously won the January 5th end of the month. Uh, this is second win of the year. Uh, I was out in Carlo actually. Great tournament. Uh, great to see some of the Dublin lads going out there. Chris was there. Um, Mark Macdonald, Prendeville, Jason Tompkins made an appearance. Declan Connolly. Uh, it was a nice field. Uh, really nice setup down there. I've never been to the Atlantis before. Really impressed with how they how they ran everything. Uh, great great fun. Paul Carr, creating all sorts of mischief and <laughs> great fun down there as well. Um, and Paul Carr's got to watch out now because both Emmet, who's now got a second result and Collum, who of course won the 8, 8 super stack earlier in the year and has a second in the fifth set of the month they're probably right in his heels now them and Declan Connolly
3: uh yeah Declan's actually right behind him in the Irish rankings which is pretty amazing because both guys nearly have the total of like last year's top place finishes <laughs> exactly. and we're only approaching May
0: yeah uh, that's all pretty sick uh anyway listen thanks so much for the news bit thank you it's time now for probably my favorite interview of the entire season this is Fergal Nealon with So I'm here with Annette
4: O'Carroll in Kearney, North Sligo. Annette, a very well-known player on the the local circuit. So um, Annette, how did you first get into cards? Oh Lord, um, Virgil, that was a long time ago.
5: I I came to Sligo as a young teacher in 1979 and I was sharing a house with a few others. And um, they were playing cards and we started playing cards first and foremost. We started playing 25 and... Then there was poker, a bit of poker around. It was mainly draw poker. And over the years, I suppose, in the early 80s and in the surrounding counties, there would be various different types of games. Uh, Donegal was a great dealer's choice place. Um, Mayo had a good bit of choice. Leitrim and Sligo was mainly draw. There was a decent game of seven cards stored in Leitrim. So over time, just learned all kinds of games. It was always a limit game. Uh, we never played anything like No Limit um, and we played for years and in various different houses and in hotels and then tournaments started up and a local guy introduced the West of Ireland uh, Open and I would have won that two years and I suppose this is like everything else is if you have a bit of success you want to go back and re-achieve what you've already done. So um that was my earlier career in poker and as poker progressed I suppose... Uh, you're talking about in the in the late 80s, early 90s, poker was probably taking a, a huge hammering. Players were getting older and literally dying, and there wasn't as much poker around. Young people didn't have a clue what a card was. They had just no idea physically what a five-card deck was. And then it started coming on television, and of course there was an explosion of new people. And uh, poker ch- changed entirely. Um the game, the mega game, became the Texas No Limit Hold'em, which has its positives and has its negatives. And um, the first Texas Horn uh, Hold'em tournament I went to was probably about um, it was possible, possibly about twelve years ago. It was up north. A northern guy was uh, a northern guy was actually running it. It took me a while that while I understood the game, like the game is always a five card game, but it but it took me a while to understand the rules and the dynamics of it. And um, so then we would have come back and we would have um, started playing it locally and would have introduced a local game that we had one night a week, a local pub game that would start at 8.30, be over around one o'clock. You had 60, 70 people and there was suddenly a whole range of new people that I'd never seen before that started showing up to things like this. So um, it was huge. So it was it wasn't a resurrection that of what was there. It was it was a new evolution in poker altogether, because very few of the people that I would have played with for years would have actually transferred over to Texas Hold'em. I try to and I struggle with it since I've uh, since I've tried. I haven't mastered it by any manner or means. I would feel um a greater comfort level with any of the other games and especially any kind of limit game because the limit was huge for us really.
4: I believe back then you did quite well in the in the local games.
5: Ah, I did. You know, you had your successes and you had your failures and that you would be modest in success and you would be modest in failure. And uh, because and because it was, um, you know, that we typically played a tournament and then we typically played a bit of cash on the side. But I'm not saying it was harmless. It was never harmless money, but it was never big money. It was it was enough to hurt. Uh, It was enough to be satisfied that if you won, but it was never enough to do damage. The minute poker starts damaging your other life, uh, that would have always been a very big concern of mine. And the only people that who have managed to have a lifelong recreational uh, dimension in poker or uh, to have a lifelong recreational life in poker are those that have managed that kind of bankroll. That's why uh, Texas Hold'em No Limits scares me.
4: Now, Can you tell us, because while you played a lot of card games throughout the Northwest, deep into the night... Your day job was 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 quite oh. the opposite to many people. Like, can you, oh, t- can you tell us a little bit about your, oh. your day job?
5: Yeah, I've been a, a teacher. And I uh, that I'm recently retired as a secondary school teacher, a catechist, and uh, I would have been teaching in an all girls convent secondary school, a fantastic place to work, and have had a fantastic career, and that would have always been my focus. And poker was something that my colleagues used to joke me about, or, or or joke, or have a bit of fun that Are you going to a game where you must be a shark, or you must be a gambler or you must be. And, and it came to the stage that you don't even bother trying to explain that you're none of those things. The thing that poker did for me socially was absolutely huge. I uh, That I worked in a school, all girls, a staff that were predominantly female, all the middle-aged, middle-class conservative people by and large, the best and finest of friends I have made there and friends that have take me through illness and all kinds of things that go wrong in your life and the fantastic friends that I made it. But poker gave me a different release altogether. You played with a guy who was 19. You played with a guy that was 90. You had a different kind of crack. Uh, There was an energy and a challenge about it. There's always a challenge, you know, and I know One of my friends says, look at that, you'd go out and you'd play poker uh, well into the night and then you come home talking to yourself the whole way home. And that's what you do. You come home and you're lecturing yourself. You're trying to relearn. You're trying to restructure how you do things and um, then you're always trying to manage that again you have to be very strict in the rules whether it's one night or two nights a week and you're trying to manage the time especially as a woman and when you have a young family and you have a full-on career that whole time management thing because really when you sit at a table and you know it better than anyone else time means nothing. It means absolutely nothing, you know, and there's no, and people would say to you, how, that how come that you don't get tired? You're, you could never get tired because you're always, you're always going and you're always busy. So managing all those things that has been a great challenge and still wanting to stay in the game. But um, it has been a great source of friendship as well to me. I've met some great people that our paths would have never, ever, ever crossed, you know.
4: I I find myself in it. What's fascinating about you from a personal point of view is that I I know you're a great moral guardian, as in for myself now in in times of trouble. And it's happened. You've been one of the first I picked up the phone to. And I'm sure there's there's many others, you know, who you're 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 the first number to dial. Yet at the poker table, you were absolutely fearless and a fearsome <laughs> character. You, I remember the first time I went into the Adelaide in Sligo, you absolutely scared the shit out of me when I, you uh, stared me down and told me, Sonny, leave, leave, leave these blinds alone.
5: <laughs> <laughs> that maybe that's the old bit of school teaching me. Now, think back to the teachers you had. There were teachers that you had tremendous respect for. That you loved the bits, but there was a line you didn't cross ever. <laughs> and
4: <laughs> I, I remember when I when I first came on the scene locally and um, and when I first started improving in the game that a lot of the, the older players in the casino were dismissing it as ah, you're too aggressive and you're too lucky, which I probably was at the time. But when when they'd be saying this to me on the breaks, you'd come out and you, you would always say, What what are you doing there and why are you doing that? Yeah. You've always uh, struck me as someone that's always keen to to learn and keep up with the game. So what type of changes have you made to your game? Oh yeah,
5: I clearly haven't made enough years. because I'm not successful enough, Fergal. <laughs> I clearly haven't made enough. But there are two different kind of games going on, broadly speaking, within the Texas No Limit Hold'em. If I go to Dublin, I have to try and play a style of a game. If not... I can forget about it. When I'm playing in a local pub in the West of Ireland, in order to ensure any degree of success, I have to play a particular kind of game. Now, the way I would describe them is like hurling and golf. Both of them have a stick and a ball, but that's about the only resemblance they have to each other. So the Dublin game, you will go broke playing it in the pub in the West of Ireland. The West of Ireland pub game, you will go absolutely broke that if you go to the bigger tournament and play that kind of game. Um I, I found a bit of success early on in the No Limit Holding because I kind of played a power game. The power game, when you go to the bigger tournament, just it can't happen until late stages into the tournament. If you're not playing the small ball stuff, you can forget about it. And if you can't play it successfully, if you can't three, bet four, bet whatever kind of betting they're doing. Um, you know, those seem to be the people that are continually ensuring success for, uh, that for themselves. If you do that in the West of Ireland in the pub, you're going to go broke so fast. Um, So it is a completely different dynamic. So I suppose a lot of um, cleverness in poker is probably playing, playing your table and playing your people more so than any particular strategy. Uh, but like the kind of poker you play is phenomenal, the kind of poker like I've been at games and these young fellas with glasses and headphones and they'll 3-bet, 4-bet and whatever else, they'll constantly put you under pressure, the pressure you'll be under will be phenomenal, they're just very good at what they do, I sit back in admiration. Now an awful lot of players my age will say is, ah oh, sure they're doing that and they don't have hands at all or they've only suited connectors and they're hoping to get lucky. That is nonsense because they end up with the chips.
4: I'm looking at a picture on your wall here sitting beside uh, Dan Harrington at, at an Irish Open. Yeah. Um, what type of ambassadors in the game do you admire? Who do you think does this <clears throat> this game correctly?
5: Oh, you have to admire the likes of Cody. You have to admire people who are uh, gentle, endearing, uh, open and available to discussion uh, who can speak well who have no roughness or gruffness about them um, you have to admire people that engage with you when you go to the game like in all fairness while I have the absolute utmost admiration for some of the young players and what they can do technically but really sitting down with you with a pair of earphones on and uh, scrolling through a gizmo do you know short of anything like it is bad manners. It's it, like that if my young fella did it that at the table that I'd be giving him a clip across the ear. Do you know, it's it's bad manners. It's as simple as all that. Uh, like I would love to see a game where every bit of stuff was banned from the table. Like and even this crack of um giving people even technically the edge that of whole cards being revealed a half an hour later than when there's still a game going on. There's a whole question mark over that that in my eyes, you know, um, the whole use of trackers online, you know, um, don't call it like it bears such a little resemblance to what poker was. I get it hard. It is a science, but that's what it is. It isn't it isn't quite poker anymore. How can I sit down and play against those guys when I know I'm bet before I start? So in a sense. Will they, that will they kill the goose that has been in the golden egg? I have been, like, when I go up to the Irish Open, the likes of you now, Fergal, or the likes of O'Carney, or the likes of any decent top Irish standard player, they are looking at me and they're saying, hmm, she's the meat in the sandwich. Now, they would want to be careful because they could be left with a sandwich without any meat in it. <laughs> 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 because... <laughs>
4: Yeah, you've, you've often made me actually down in the Adelaide eat that vegetarian <laughs> sandwich. So so on that, uh, where do you see your future in the game as it is today? Oh, good Lord, I don't know, uh, Fergal. I don't know where my future
5: is. My future is playing one night, maybe two nights a week locally as a social thing, which which it always has been. Uh and if I'm good enough or if I'm lucky enough, making a few quid in it. Uh, my future is taking a few trips with any of the companies, whether it be overseas or whether it be in Ireland and taking a shot at something bigger. That is my future. Um, I would hate to be where you are now. Uh, even though I have the utmost admiration for you to have to try and make a living from poker. that's why I have such, I have such absolute respect for O'Carney and Nappan and all them. They're bright, intelligent guys that, as you are, who could make a living at anything else, but the challenge you face, in a diminishing pool, like there is a danger that you will um, that you'll end up eating one another, you know. And uh, between that and the industry, there's another thing now is, back in the Dale. No penny of poker went to the industry, no penny of poker except in a tournament, no penny of cash went went down the chute. So the money you sat down with, it went round the table, Do you know, and um, you got more mileage for it. Now it is going down the chute, and long term, that's sure, that's impossible, especially when you're playing uh small time stakes. That's virtually impossible to so sustain. Sure, inside of, in, in like, inside of five or six nights that if the same pool of players are playing, whatever they're playing with, that if they're playing with a couple of hundred euros each, which has all gone down the chute. Now, I understand that the industry has to survive, and I understand that the industry promotes in that. But, like, the online reg fees and the online rake is totally ridiculous for something that's happening in cyberspace. You know, Jesus, should them companies were just watching it go around like it was... A second clock, you know, clocking up the millions and billions. The likes of poker stars and all that for years. and I don't know. So I don't know where the future of it is. It has definitely contracted big time. It has definitely been oversaturated and it has been diluted. Uh, but uh, whatever future I have for me, it is the live game. Like I am not going to, you know, an old dog, new tricks. I'm not going to go back and start... Uh, That I'm not going to go back and do the equivalent of a university degree to be able to play online poker.
4: So now on that was fascinating. I'm lucky. I just want to say on a personal note, you're a great friend of mine. And and as I said earlier, a real moral guardian. You have fantastic nuggets of wisdom. And thank you so much for for sharing these nuggets on on the podcast today. Yeah,
5: but, you know, like I've often seen even Fergal, you now, and seen other lads that are good young fellas. And they can beat themselves up over the game you know and they can beat themselves up about their level of success and what did they do right and what did they do wrong and then i've seen fellas getting up young young prats getting up with a bit of temper that if they get a bad beat or something like it's a game it's a game like you see like you would know better now than i would because you'd know on a world circuit the people who have achieved phenomenal success and have now and have now um gone broke you know
4: well on that note Annette <laughs>
5: <laughs> And if you do go bro, Come out to me That we'll make you the dinner <laughs> We'll keep you fed anyway
4: Well listen Thanks very much Annette You're a real lady of the game And a real legend Of the game in my <laughs> go eyes Go on, that you're most flattering And uh, then I like that in young men Thank you
6: <laughs> Chip Race would love to hear from you Get in touch via Twitter At The Chip Race And
7: find us on Facebook
0: Here on the Chip Race, we've been just dying to get into a really meaty strategy bit. I like to call this one, why it's always correct to bluff, Dara
3: Davey. I can't (laughs) wait for this.
2: Yeah, bluffing is one of those things which I think really draws people into the game. People love the fact that bluffing is possible in the game, that you can win with the best hand. Um, I think when people start, often play, maybe they don't bluff because they're not confident, but then once they find out that they can bluff, they, they... do it because it's really enjoyable, and maybe they do it too much for a while, and then they start getting caught, so they do it less. Um, but really good players have this concept of um, having a balanced bluffing range, um, which basically means that, like, let's say you're you, you get to the river and you bet half pot, and the other person is sitting there um, trying to decide whether to call or not. Now they're betting half pot, so you're giving them three to one on the call. So you have to, you should be bluffing twenty five percent of the time. Uh, Otherwise, they can exploit you in some way. If if you're bluffing more often than that, then they're going to make money by always um, calling you down when they can beat a bluff. And if you're bluffing less often than that, then your value bets won't get paid off often enough. So that's basically the optimal frequency from a game theory point of view.
0: What camp would you fall into there, Dara, when you're you're looking to make bigger bets or smaller bets when you're bluffing, and what frequencies would you be looking at without giving too much away?
2: Yeah, well, well, I think it's important to have... um, the same bet sizing for most situations. So whether you're value betting or whether you're bluffing, you should be betting the same amount, at least against... sophisticated thinking opponents some people get into situations where they'll bet bigger when they're bluffing because they want people to fold and they'll bet smaller when when they're not bluffing because they want to call. The problem if you're doing that is that the, the more perceptive players at the table will pick that up and they'll then be able to judge whether you're bluffing or not uh, just by the amount that you're betting.
0: Yeah that's a brilliant point and, and a little bit similar to uh, you know why your opening sizes should be similar all the time as well you just don't want to give things away in your in your uh, bet sizing tells.
2: Yeah exactly so, so like I fall into the smaller betting camp so I tend to value bet small and I, I bluff bet my bluff bets are the same amount so therefore I do tend to be bluffing about 25% of the time in those spots to be balanced now s- some people bluff more some people b- bluff less but you can also um, in terms of when, you, when you're calling down on how often you're betting you have to think of how balanced you are and there was a really interesting hand uh, a few months ago between um, our own Dara Davy. he's
0: joined us here He's come back in.
2: And Alex from Carlo, who's also a top-class young player.
0: Notice you didn't pronounce his second name there. (laughs) 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 Alex T, I think everybody calls him. (laughs) (laughs) Tin and
2: cook, I believe. Yeah. So uh, we have Dara in the studio, so we can actually ask Dara about the hand as well. But um, from what I gathered, the, the blinds
3: were 250 and 500, Dara, and you correct i min plus a bit with pretty deep stacks with queens from late position
2: yeah so you make it i think a 1050 with the queens from late position alex isn't the big blind and alex defends we won't give alex's hand yet until the end of the yeah. thing but so the flop comes 873 rainbow and alex checks
3: what are you thinking at this point i always have the best hand i'm going to see about this with pretty much my entire range obviously queens is near the top of that range very easy bet i think
2: so you bet a standard amount, which you would bet whether you had it or not.
3: Yeah, I'd say probably just under half pot. I can't really remember the sizing.
2: Yeah, so. I, I, from my notes, I think you bet fourteen hundred, which again is ha- half the size of the pot, okay. um, which you would do whether you were bluffing or whether you actually have it. You have it in this case. Uh, Alex calls. The turn is a six, so the board now reads eight, seven, three, six. Alex checks again.
3: It's probably not the best card ever. It's now the board is far more coordinated but at the same time I still think I have the best hand a huge percentage of the time here I think it would be probably more of a mistake to allow a free card to peel off here with very deep stacks as well like uh, he can raise at some point and I can still reevaluate so it's not like I'll be committed at some point
0: if i can come across there when when you see that six peel that's obviously not a bad card for the 8x and 7x range and similarly if a guy has a 9 or a 10 in his hand as well that's going to give him a little bit more equity and a little bit more reason to hang on that's a good reason in some ways uh when he has maybe picked up some draws to get more value on the street but the counterbalance to that is it it is a card that will hit his range some of the time and maybe has you know, led him to Mm -hmm. taking the lead.
3: I can definitely see an argument for checking. I'm not sure I like it, though, to be honest. I think I should still bet here with the top of my range.
0: When you bet this street, are you thinking, well, that allows me to check back a lot of rivers?
3: Oh, if the river's definitely bad for my range, completing a straight, yeah, I... I as having the betting lead on the turn, I think it will check to me more on the river. Therefore, I can check back instantly.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. So, uh, Alex, so you bet twenty-seven fifty, which again is approximately half the pot. And I Alex, wish I
3: wish I had kind of bet more in ret- retrospect. But.
2: Okay, and Alex calls again. Now the river is a jack. Uh, what's what's your thinking when the jack hits the river?
3: It was quite interesting. The jack isn't a great card, as I think a lot of coordinated 8x, 7x type hands that would have defended contain jacks as their kicker, a reasonable percentage. It's not the worst card ever, though, and it certainly doesn't complete anything immediately obvious. So I, Alex, I believe, thought through a little bit and then checked, and I kind of thought, well, if he hit two pair, I think there's some percentage chance he would lead at me here. Mm -hmm. So I'm now feeling reasonably confident with my hand and decide to value that.
2: Yeah, so you bet 5.5K um, into 11K. Um, and this, I guess, is where the hand gets interesting because Alex now raised to 14,300. 300,
3: which was quite a small raise, yeah.
2: Yeah, quite a small raise. Because, I mean, oftentimes when people get check-raised on the river, they go, oh, my God, I've been check-raised. You must have a monster. But you have to also think in pot-odd pot, pot odd terms. You only now have to call 8,800 into, into 30,800. So you basically only need to have the hand... The best hand about 25 percent of the time to break even yeah
3: yeah uh, in game i remember actually alex thought for a long time before raising and i had kind of made my mind up as i seen the size of the raise being built is like i think he has it here so much i think he might just raise me with any two pair combo here which in my head at the time was a huge combo of hands given that you own, uh that you have an uncapped
0: range here and you could have you know the nuts in, in this situation do you feel like he's always gonna maybe raise with the bad
3: like the lesser two pairs, maybe not always, but some percentage of the time okay. yeah I get I'm not really sure to be honest to this day I still don't know. I think Alex is the only one who would know that
2: okay, so after considering it very carefully, you decided you weren't good often enough to make the call. Uh,
3: I couldn't really see how I was ever good to be honest. yeah, your game.
2: Even though you've got queens on a jack high board, you're basically only beating a bluff now.
3: Yeah, and of a big blind defending range, I suppose, I don't think we discussed that at any point. Alex is the type of guy I expect to defend half of hands. Mm. Of all the hands he can defend, there's just so much that has gone there. There are so many combinations of hands I can think that can beat me. And it's also fair to say that he probably has
0: some value here uh, a lot of the time. So if he's going to you know, proceed in this hand, calling and being good sometimes is, is going to work out for him.
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, as in, I don't think he can have absolutely nothing to call twice. He has something. That yeah. has prob in my head anyway, had improved enough. Now, of course, we're go- getting into why we call this you should always bluff Darragh Davy segment. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Okay, well, just lo- looking at it from a game theory perspective and, and specifically in relation to how often you should bluff, when, when you bet half the pot on the river, um, as I said, when you bet half pot on the river, you should be bluffing um, a quarter of the time whether you're actually bluffing a quarter of the time or not, uh, in this specific I- instance, we don't really know.
3: I, to be honest, I wouldn't even be sure. I would say I am bluffing some percentage. It might not be a quarter though. It might not be that way. Um, the type of hands I would be bluffing with would be hands that maybe flops nothing, turned equity, and now I'm double barrel, and now I'm following through with the triple barrel.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. But anyway, to get to 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 cut to the results, after you folded, Alex showed his hand, which was after a
3: bit of pause because I did really because Alex took so long to think. I actually released my hand quite quickly, but most of my thinking time was when he was thinking because yeah. I was I was nearly preparing for the raise that was inevitably coming. Um, yeah, he think, he debates it because I think he thought he might have just been winning and I was bluffing, but he eventually shows he yeah, had 10-7 suited, I believe, for 10, third, third pair, 10, not 10, really a kicker. Yeah,
2: 10-7 <laughs> suited. So I guess uh, on the flop he's got he's got middle pair, um, so he probably thinks he has Top the best player, hand a lot. 8-7-3, I think the flop was. And oh, sorry. Bad. Yeah, so he, um, he's middle pair and he probably thinks his hand is the best a lot, there's, but there's no real point in raising because... Uh, He'll just blow off all your worse hands. And if, and if you raise him again, uh, he's not going to like it very much. Correct. He picks up equity on the turn because it's a six. So now if he's behind, he's got a gut shot um, as, uh, uh, as well as the other ways to improve. Um, so again, he check calls. Now, when he checks the river, he probably thinks he still has the best hand some of the time. But then when you bet, he decides he doesn't have the hand. So he decides basically to turn his hand into a bluff.
3: I think it's one of those things he thinks he completely out and outplayed me I think he thinks he can get me off all one pairs yeah. Yeah. yeah and as a result if I am bluffing the raise will achieve what a call would achieve he is going to win the pot yeah Um, unless I go really kamikaze mode
2: <laughs> just like shove I guess the interesting part of the hand for me is that when he bet when he raises to 14,300 to win 16,500 he only needs the bluff to work about 45% of the time for it to be profitable Now, you were actually folding queens, which is well up your range at that point for value betting. Um, I think you said to me at the time that you would bet tens for value. You would have bet any jack almost. And you bet all your over pairs, your two pairs and your sets. So, queens is very high up that range. Um, And I think I I, I, I ran rough combination calculations on it. I think it basically means you're folding 75% of the time if you're folding. Um, So, you are exploitable there. But Mm -hmm. you obviously felt that it was okay to diverge, that you didn't think there was much risk of being exploited.
3: In retrospect, I might be changing that opinion. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's still, I find your optimization of what percentage people should be bluffing or that is a very valid point. But in reality of live games, people just have it in this spot so much yeah they're just yeah. not
0: going to do it they're not going to pull the trigger often enough What the yeah. great phrase of our, our pal Kevin Killeen is sometimes you just got to climb into the vacuum yeah. and, and make these folds yeah, that I think might that, never see
2: I think that's a great point Like, wh- whereas from a game theory perspective Alex is supposed to be bluffing 45, or f- uh, 45% forty-five of the time here I think very few people actually are bluffing that often in practice
3: I think in reality there's some people who are close to zero
0: we're joined now by Andy Black a huge treat for the chip race on their last episode in the current season we saved the best for last Andy uh, first and foremost this is sort of like the second second coming of Andy Black it's like you know don't call it a comeback um, at this point are are you more important than Jesus now that we have uh, Andy Black coming back version 2.0 3.0
7: have, have I stumbled into a kind of Religious kind of program by mistake. Is this so? Do you normally just do religious stuff?
0: Well, we do. We, we no. I'm just. Talk, I'm, to I'm, our
7: I'm trying to figure. Out, I'm trying to figure out the degree of importance that Jesus, you know, manifests on this show, and then I can answer. You know, I have my own ideas. I
2: think this is the first mention of Jesus on the show. That helps you.
7: All right. Yeah. So have you been holding back, or what's the story? <laughs> We're just saving it <laughs> until the last one. Yeah. Well, you know, not to blow my own trumpet. Uh-oh. Oh. But go ahead anyway. Um, I think Jesus is really important to a lot of people.
0: And and, and how As does are you. It? <laughs> <laughs> but tell me, obviously, you know, you still play the live scene a wee bit over the last few years. But it's fair to say, uh, uh, similarly to maybe after your World Series where you took a break, you kind of took a break from it as a full-time occupation. Yeah. Uh, and you've come back kind of in the last, what, six months to a year. How has that been, or how are you kind of viewing the poker world these days?
7: um well it's really interesting I mean it is i mean basically in in' 98 you know after I had some success in Vegas, I did actually take uh five or six years off. um I was doing different stuff then, um but I literally couldn't really play. I wasn't really into it. This period's been a bit different. Sometimes I thought I could still play. But I actually wasn't into it enough to actually uh, play seriously. Um what was happening in reality was maybe once or twice a year I get, you know, the Irish Open. I go, right, and I would get myself going and I would go, right, this is the Irish Open, yeah, and I'd play. And then I thought, you know, I actually thought um, that that was okay. But now looking back on that, it's like I was trying to – I actually was pushing myself through a small hole in the wall to actually um, – to play properly. and then whenever the, the Irish open ended, that was me, you know, I just couldn't be kind of bothered again and I'd half try. But uh, my experience this time was a little bit different. I didn't even realize that I wasn't able to uh, play properly. And obviously in the last five years, what what's happened is I think it still by about 2007, 2008, the internet um, and the, what, what had happened as a result of that, hadn't fully permeated into the the poker world. Um, you know, the the yeah. people there, enough of the people who were playing on the internet still hadn't hadn't almost overtaken in serious respects the, the the people were good. And if you look at the results in the World Series main event, it's clear, you know, I mean, you know, Jamie Gold had won the the main event in two thousand six and then two thousand seven it was like was it Jerry Yang or something like that? Yeah. But it wasn't yeah. until the last um Six seven years that it's been twenty somethings winning the the main event in the World Series. So what I found is is um, over the last while I I just started getting enthusiastic about poker again. I had a lot on my life plate so to speak, and that's diminished a bit. So I for whatever reason, complex of reasons, I've I've now you know I want to kind of play again, um, and uh, the and
2: and and in terms of you know getting getting back into playing like what what kind of things have you been doing to try and you know let's say uh, make yourself aware of the current
7: state of the game and what
2: how it's changed well
7: <laughs> the first thing the first thing you need to do if you're my age and for my age I'm just going to be 50 this year but for my age I'd say really anyone over you know anyone who's probably been playing you know, maybe over 35 or something like that, I guess. It might be 30, 35. Is you have to realize that the stuff you don't know. And that's really, really difficult. Yeah. Because the amount of new knowledge that's come in, you don't know it. So people think, oh, well, you know, they, I mean, uh, even, even in my own day, well, what the people who don't know, what they do is they tend to think, oh, he's just being really aggressive. Yeah. Or he's just, you know, doing something a bit mad. And their their analysis of what people are doing is not precise enough. And it was the same back 20, 30 years ago. It doesn't matter how long poker's been played. The analysis of those that are less good is usually less precise than um, those that actually sort of are in touch with what's actually happening. So, to cut a long story short, the first thing I had to do was fully admit to myself that <laughs> I didn't know loads of things, yeah? And that's, you know, that I, I found that not easy. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that, um, and I'm still really in the, right in the middle of that process. Um, and I'm assuming that um, that's the same problem that millions of poker players all over the world, regardless of their standard, uh, uh, have had, you know? And um, so what I've started doing is, you know, I've started trying to talk to people. I've read sort of some of the key books. I've watched and listened carefully to commentary on um, some of the more appropriate games, the ones I found interesting, EPT Live, and um, you know, uh, as well some of the the super high rollers. Um, it depends who's commentating, but if you get someone who's like Olivier Busquet or or yeah. or, or, or someone yeah. like that, yeah. they're very good. So so there's a few guys that are are very good. So there's so what I've done is I've started doing that, and then I quickly started realizing over the last while. That there was things I just didn't know, and 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 how that manifested in my game was uh, so. In the last six seven months, I started playing tournaments again. I, you know, I had a decent success. You know, I was sort of cashing in half them and getting close in in half of those half, yeah, um, which is is good. But at certain points during the tournament, what was happening was I was still trying to catch up. Literally at the key moment where I had to make the decision, whatever that was, I was still trying to catch up technically. You know, I just, uh, and I didn't, looking honestly at it, I didn't actually know what's going on, yeah? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so all that energy, which I would have to kind of go, does he have it, does he not? You know, half of it was going, what the hell is going on? Does he have it, does he not? What the hell is going on? Does he have it, does he not? <laughs> yeah. and, and, and basically, I ended up being confused, and I wouldn't know what I was doing, which is not a normal experience for me. Yeah. Either I know what's going on usually, or I don't. That's one of my strengths. And then mm. if I don't, you know, the hand goes away. If I do, then I act. You know mm. what I mean? Ultimately, that's... That's probably most of my success is based on that.
0: <laughs> sure. No, but you, ma- you made a very good point, which I think is true, is that what was going on in the internet maybe 2006 through 2010 was what I observed as being the best poker being played, but it was being played at quite a low stake. And it took a while for those guys mm-hmm. to build up their roles where they could compete now in big games with the other established yeah. best players. And, and I think that's the, the explanation to why maybe it took a few more years before you started seeing these guys in super high rollers or win oh, main right. events. Um, but, But I think it's so interesting to hear you come at it because your poker brain is your poker brain and it's still exceptionally good. But when you don't like exercise that muscle for a while and other people are, you know, maybe making these nuanced changes as you go along. You're now put in a spot where you're like, okay, I'm actually kind of getting confused sometimes or or they're so balanced in certain situations that I'm going to be right as often as I'm wrong. Maybe and I just have to accept sometimes that I'm going to make a bad call or whatever it is.
7: Well, no, for me, it's not like that, okay. right? So for me, so and I'm I mean, it can be like that sometimes, yeah. So what I think is gonna, and this is what I think will be the next evolution of poker, right? And so far, I've guessed most of the other ones, right? So the, I mean, initially back around 2005, I, I you know, endlessly people would come up to me and I'd say, look, you got to work more in your game outside your game than in your game, yeah. Was one thing I said, and then the next thing I said. Which, was, which I was doing more at that time than nearly everyone else. And then the other thing I said was that the, there'd be an awful lot more work and personal development, et cetera, et cetera. And that has definitely happened. Yeah. Yeah? yeah. So here, hot off the press, I'm going to tell you what I think is going to be the next one, right? Yeah. So much as I'm trying to learn the kind of stuff at the moment, which a lot of people find, you know, is, is quite obvious and standard. Yeah. So, so that people balance the range using crap hands and, and good hands. You know, and there are certain yeah. types of hands that people will call and raise in certain position to do with hands that play well and don't play well. I mean I'm learning that, boys. You know, I mean I'm sure I have some <laughs> of it naturally. But it was more that I was trying to read other people and I you know, I thought like, this guy's only this good at poker, and yet he can't be doing that. Yeah. And and what exactly is he doing? And he was doing it automatically. What I think is not gonna be the next thing now, which is gonna happen more and more is as the the different nuances come through. What I'm experiencing now is there's an imbalance in players, where uh, in in the skill skill aspect of players, and that imbalance is this: is that the the ability and the sense that people are putting into balancing their ranges and figuring out what what's gonna ha- what's gonna happen next if somebody does this and if somebody does that, then once you've done all of that, you still have to look. This is for live poker, not for internet poker. You still have to look the guy in the eye. And he's still sitting there with that hand. Yeah? Mm. And that's the bit that has now fallen behind, I believe. That's going to be the next real focus. Now, maybe people are already doing it. I'm actually behind the curve yet again. But I feel that's going to be... I mean, uh, the the focus now of the really good young players, um, they're going to realize that that now... You know, it's like the muscle they've been developing, and now they've developed their tricep muscle, and now they have to go and develop these, you know, these other muscles. But I don't know what you guys think of that.
2: Yeah, I think like I think historically there's always been a, a, almost distrust between players from an online background and a live background. I think when they when the online players started coming in playing live first the live players were very dismissive of them, saying, you know, you, you, you guys mm. just click buttons and it's not really on, it's not really poker what you're doing. And similarly, on the other side, there was a lot of arrogance from online players who were going, well, I played a lot more hands than you have, and they believed themselves to be better technical players, but necess- didn't necessarily make the adjustments to playing live, I think, which I think is another reason why even though it was partially a numbers game, partially just there weren't that many online players playing live. But it was also, I think a lot of the online players actually had a period of readjustment to playing live because it is different playing live, as as you know. And, I mean, you're probably somebody who is, um, you know, would be identified as, would have the live skills uh, very much down. Um,
7: yeah, I mean, uh, so, so let, let's just be clear here that it's more... The, the this point you hit in a hand where you've done your analysis. Yeah. I mean, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. And you're sitting there, yeah? And the guy has whatever he has. Yeah. It's, it's different if a guy never sitting there. He doesn't have a He's either weak or strong, yeah. invariably, mm-hmm. at that point, yeah? And you can track back, yeah? And he still was feeling weak or strong when he bet, so, there's a division occurring between, I, I think, yeah. As I, as I, in a sense, in my own journey, is this I'm still behind the curve in, in working out all of these bits and pieces in terms of if somebody does this, then some, somebody does that. But, I, but once you've done that, most of that, the person is still there with that weaker, strong hand. And and they still give something off, you yeah. know. They still yeah. give something and, You know, I mean, I, I'm just wondering how much that's that's going to play a part. I mean, a, a classic moment. There was a classic moment a few years that stuck in my head before I'd even done the work. But Daniel Legrenu was um, sitting with Nanoko in one of these uh, I don't know, TV sort of things, yeah. And he went... So, and he'd obviously he'd done, the, he'd done the work and all of this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So he went, so you're thinking that if you do that, then you do this, then you do that, then this happens. Hmm, okay, yeah. And one of the grand new, you know, I mean, because I've played against the grand new, you know, a fair bit over the years, you know, and what was going on for him was exactly what I'm talking about, that he, that he, he was actually going.
0: He's trying to get his read now. Then now, exactly. Yeah. No, yeah. he's
7: trying to get his read. So you do this, you do that, you do this, okay. Yeah. so that's your thought process is okay now I can look at it yeah
2: I think there are some guys who are like there I, must be I think a lot of the a, a lot of the stuff that's been there and and it's obviously not new stuff because live poker has been around for so long but a lot of it was very unscientific I think there are guys taking a more scientific approach now guys like Zachary Elwood who you know wrote reading poker tales and so on they're actually Sitting down, analysing thousands of hours of video footage and that sort of stuff. Oh wow! Uh, to okay. see what, to see what can be picked Zachary up. Elwood. Zachary Elwood. Is he? Has he written a book or yeah, something? Yeah, yeah. It's called uh, "Reading Poker Tells." Really, I think it's I think is it's it on best Kindle? Um, I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Okay, we'll be getting that today. giving him a nice plug now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Zachary out. Elwood. <laughs> <laughs> um,
7: so Even yeah, it sounds the, good, doesn't it? It's, it's like quite a nice
2: name. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's it's definitely a, a, a very good book that I would recommend. But and
7: how does that stand up to, to
2: Cairo's book of tells? Like Cairo's book, obviously it is it it is pretty universal, but I think even more unsophisticated players, let's say, don't tend to give off the, the more obvious tells yeah, as much as they used yeah. to because people know that they're supposed to, you know, and that that information is out there. So the next level is now literally just, you know, micro gestures or uh, analyzing changes in behavior changes changes in the baseline and, and all that sort of stuff
7: well that's really interesting I mean because that, that that that's what I think yeah I'm wondering yeah. how many many guys are really good at that so far I mean what do you think I mean yeah, many- I, I,
0: I think one of the interesting follow-ups is that you made the comparison between live and online and, and I think what happens live uh which is different from online is that you're going to put yourself in passive spots more you're going to call maybe in position and, and have a look at the guy because you trust your ability to make that judgement whereas online we're really just thinking you know Dara wrote a great blog about boxes a few years ago uh, check it out if you haven't heard it yet but it, it basically reduces every corner of your screen every one sixteenth of your screen to having some, some value and in those situations we're really just thinking about hourly rate. we're not thinking about if it's a book an hour on that game or two books an hour on so- that game whereas live you're sitting there you've nowhere else to go you have no other buttons to click. So you may as well put yourself in the spot that you think you can make profitable using your life skills. And I think that's maybe one of the big differences.
7: I yeah, think- one of the things I'm wondering is see, one of the things I'm still wondering about is 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 the so what I one of the reasons I think that a lot of the young guys have won is one, they're young, right? Yeah. So if they're young, you're more you're intense young and fearless. And you're more up for it and you're more fearless and you get you know, the classic you get the the guys who, you know, have been luckier. Uh, amongst the masses, always getting through, you know, they're running well, so they're running well, so they're confident, and uh, they're, there's there's loads of other little reasons like that, so my, my wondering is um, that almost uh, that's actually wiped out the sort of live players, because it's the volume of people that are technically more proficient than they are has actually wiped out that advantage, but if, you know, like you're in my position and you can manage to catch up, then... You've you know, added edge. Well, possibly. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's it's, now, it's the point that David brought up there, where where you know you, you might you might have some possibilities, you know.
2: Yeah. No, I think I, I think that you 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 can definitely add that edge, and I think a lot a lot of the young guys are even looking to to add that edge. Like I've had some younger guys who are very very proficient online players come to me and they start playing live and it doesn't go well. And initially they tend to write it off to variance, and then they think, well, maybe I'm doing something wrong. So they're looking for guidance. Now, their focus is usually maybe I'm giving off information, maybe live players are reading me. And that's ah. that's what they tend to worry about. But I always try to encourage them to actually, well, you know, try and turn it around, try and actually look for stuff yourself as well, because you have all the technical stuff already. But if you can pick up additional information, which tell, which indicates whether somebody is at the weak part of their range or the strong part of their range, you know their range is their range, but you can still make a judgment as to where on the range they well, are. Well, it's
7: more. I tell you what it is, right? I mean, well, this is this is my this is how I work, and I know different people work different differently. I mean, uh, I mean, I'm definitely so. If you break live tells into more physical, you know, obvious obvious tells, and then on the other side you've got almost feel tells, and and the 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 boundary, there's a hazy boundary in the middle where they kind of join a bit, and it's something to do with time, gestures. But what the reality is, is that what well, helps people more than anything else is when I look at a table, yeah, the the you're sitting there for 12 hours. There's information appearing the whole time. Mm. And one seemingly irrelevant piece of information that may be happening sort of eight hours previous, yeah, might actually turn out to be useful because the guy did that kind of thing when he was weak, sure. you know? Yeah. And then eight hours later, he doesn't do that kind of thing, you yeah. know? And, and there's, but there's endless sort of raises, and, and uh, that works on two levels, yeah? It works in relation to the particular player, so that that particular player, but it's also an overall skill where the more you do it, there's that particular type of player, that he acts slowly or quickly or that the tone of his voice is like this or that he sits in a certain way or that his demeanor is is different, but also you know there's also in, interrogating people, which is an underused skill. Yeah, actually that's, is, that, <laughs> that,
2: that, that that was something I wanted to say to you. Like I, I I think when I play live, I do pick up quite a lot of stuff, but I but I'm very passive. I'm basically just watching people. But uh, I went for yeah. a run with Garrett Chandra at the weekend, who runs the Full Tilt blog, and I mentioned to him that you were coming in, and he said he said that he played with you, I think maybe in Galway or somewhere, and he said I never. Saw a table captain until I played with Andy Black. Somebody who completely dominated the table through their talk and was actually seemed to actually be able to draw information out of people that they wouldn't have otherwise got. Is that something yeah. you consciously worked on? Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah, it is short answer. Look,
1: yes. look,
0: he doesn't want to give anything away now. <laughs> <laughs> this is his real edge. No,
7: I mean the truth. Of the matter is okay. Well, I give it away, you know, because I mostly want to play in America or somewhere else, not here. So, <laughs> fuck it, oh well. Um, the yeah, the 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 truth is, if people talk and they communicate about whatever, yeah, if you have a certain bent, yeah, you can you can figure out from that what what they're like. Yeah, and then that will apply to what hand you know what they're like. It's but it's hard for me to know how teachable that is. Mm. Yeah, to people because I mean so, you know it's like another thing struck me recently where, you know, Phil Helmuth and it's been knocking around. He said uh about uh, a couple of months ago, where uh people have a ceiling, yeah on on um, on what's the word? It's not read, but but their ceiling on basically reading people. Yeah, or they're they uh, they have a ceiling on that range of abilities. He used a particular word, which I can't remember at the moment, but but the the that was the point he was making, and I thought that was really really interesting, you know, because it's almost like and and the way I think of it, it was with the helmet, is he sort of believes in his reads, um, almost more than anyone else. He believes not only in his reads, but his capacity. To make those reads, yeah, so it's almost that you know uh, sense of doing that I mean even I mean a good example of this just talking to to um Davy when I was coming in here. And he was he was talking about a hand he played in UKIP Nottingham. It was the hand that knocked him out, and he would 17 big blinds. And I, I might have this exactly right, but the the guy was in the cutoff, and he raised, and he'd ace-queen, and he yeah. felt he was strong, but he put the money in. The guy had kings. So, I mean, in some ways, that's this kind of standard hand, yeah? yeah? But I can imagine Helmuth, or even me on a good day, you know, mm. sitting there with that decision, maybe with ace-jack or something like yeah. that. Ace-queen's a bit difficult, but... At least allowing oneself the possibility the possibility of focusing on wait a second he's strong because I think you know and I'd make it even more specific than that particularly with these kind of all in hands yeah sometimes people have the top you know point two five percent of their other point five percent of their range yeah. yeah yeah and they just have that they yeah. have and you aces have. have a certain feel kings have a certain feel <laughs> you do you sort of that, know you it. get spooked an ace king particularly has a certain feel yeah and i think everyone sort of you know because they're showing over so often so there is this opportunity of in a sense having this other part of oneself that's going yeah yeah the guy has that. But people don't want to do that. One of the reasons why people don't want to do that is they feel if they do that, then that might derail the sort of logical, uh, considered yeah. part of their game. So it's scary. If you do that, then, then that, that adjusts your whole system almost. Yeah, yeah? To, I mean, to put it in game theory terms, like a
2: lot of the guys come from a game theory background now, the guys who play online. And the the idea in game theory is that there's an unexploitable strategy. There's a strategy which will will not lose you money in the long run if you stick to it.
7: Yeah, but, it sounds like slow
2: death. But, but yeah. But the sense. but the point is like the the, the <laughs> slow, slow joke. The better the better players don't stick exclusively <laughs> to it. The better players
7: know when yeah. to diverge yeah. and why, and when not. Yeah, to someone diverge. like Kevin Killeen or or, or uh, Dara is uh, very good. You know.
2: Yeah. No, Dara, Dara will diverge a, a lot. Like, but the, the 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 debate is always that the further you diverge from the baseline strategy while you may be exploiting the people that um, you know because you, you're reading them for the top of their range you may also be getting exploited you know you're opening yourself up to the possibility that if you're going to fold ace queen that he's actually sitting there with ace 10 and you, you, you've you turned down a, a, a hugely profitable situation mm. so that's why I think a lot of the online guys don't even want to entertain the notion they just think well this is the correct but what you've got plan.
7: yeah so but what you've got right so, so let's just go back to live tournaments what you've got in a live tournament is you know, part of the thing is, is staying in, you know. So you're trying to stay in with a decent amount of chips, let's say. I mean, let's just put that as a kind of, you know, ideally, you're trying. To, if you play 20 tournaments, you're trying to stay in with a decent amount of chips. So you have to assess for yourself where your skills lie. Mm. And the better you think you are at reading and the better you think you are at making these, these particular kinds of decisions which are not just mathematical, but are also you, you get these extra decisions where you just kinda know that, hey, this these numbers of people, the table's kinda good value and these if I can just hold out yeah. and choose an option, then then good things will happen. happen or you else. know that you've got I mean it only amounts to you know, it can only amount to sometimes like a couple of decisions in a day. Yeah.
0: yeah. To go yeah. back to something you said earlier, you you were talking about well, Dara actually had mentioned that you were a a table captain and that there never had been a table captain scene like it as Gareth Chandler had said but uh, I just wanted to get back to something at the risk of going back and bookending this as some sort of religious thing but uh, I was in doing a little bit of research (laughs) for this I I, I look back on your Heads Up with Herring Herring was Stuart Lee's old comedy partner and you did a a sort of a 20 minute interview with him and in that you credited uh, the sort of the Buddhism uh, or the type of Buddhism that you had as being influenced by the diamond cutter by Gisha Martin, um, Michael Roach. And I just wondered in that sense of you're, you're out there engaging with people and you're out there kind of, it's almost like friendly fire or something. You're, you're sort of wanting to have a chat. And I'm sure you're interested in the people who are at the table, but you're also out there trying to find out the information that might help you in a decision later on. Does that fit in nicely with the diamond cutter? And, and, and the idea is in that, which is that you can almost benefit more from not being an ultra competitive person in, in in that marketplace or in whatever you mm. want to call it, that at some level by being um, friendly or nicer, you can achieve greater goals in the long run or something like that?
7: Well, I mean, it's funny. It's a paradox because those pokers kind of exploited it. I mean, the, the, he wrote the book on, uh, you know, he was in a um, serious Buddhist training for many years. I mean, more than me. And um, but then he got into the diamond business in New York, and it's a really tough business. So you so in a sense you're in a, you know, an exploited business which poker often is, but you've decided to be there. So that's that's on my own conscience, yeah. And you're trying to do it in a way which is as unexploitative as uh, possible, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's difficult. But part of that. So let's just break it down. So so. You know, obviously you, you try not to borrow money off people, for example, and not give it back to them and you know, so you try and make your financial dealings sort of straightforward, yeah. Um, you know, you're not maybe unnecessarily cruel to people. Um uh but then there's also so those you know, you can you can extrapolate that onto a whole list of kind of potentially negative things that you could do. So you look at yourself, you try and take responsibility for your for your actions within that. But then on the positive side, there's there's also, you know, how you deal with people positively. So I think that the me, how I am at a table, believe it or not, it's actually not hard-nosed a lot of the time. I mean, that's that's a mistake to 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 see it like that. Okay. You know, it, it's actually I'm not. I don't go down and think. I, I never go down and sit at the table. I'm going to talk a lot so I can accumulate loads of information. <laughs> yeah. Right. People might think, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not. I'm I'm doing that because, you know, I usually like having a bit of a laugh, yeah. yeah. And I don't always do it. I don't always have the energy for it. And then momentum builds up, and I just kind of get into it. And you know, it is information does come out of it. But while I'm doing it, I'm not really thinking, oh, I'm going to accumulate information. And part of the reason why they do that is, is I think maybe, I mean, it's hard for me to to judge this, but but people come off the table with me mostly actually haven't had a pretty good fucking time yeah. now i'm sure i do annoy some people and this is but this is a work in until progress. they
0: look down and see that they've half the stack they had before you <laughs>
7: <laughs> well i'm hoping that the half the stack they have after playing me is better than the half the stack they might have from playing someone else but i mean this is a very fine judgment sure. but i do you know i do know there is a lot of laughing sometimes and there is people having a good time and for me you know i think that that is you know, important. So my, my idea behind it is not bottom line, funnily enough. Yeah, it's just sure. something that you're
2: naturally good at. And at the bottom line sometimes
7: do. does emerge out of that. Um, but mostly, to be honest with you, I mean, I can distract myself by doing that. So I have to be careful. So it, I think it can encourage people to make a few more mistakes. It can it can disguise some of my own weaknesses insofar as I'm sure I present um Various things which might be quite obvious at times to people who are very perceptive. So I can disguise it by sort of a variety of noises that hopefully (laughs) might might confuse people. Much the same as someone who's very impassive and sits there does nothing. Yeah, you Mm. know that can disguise it, um, disguise what they're doing as as well. But I've, you know, the truth of the matter for me, if I was being really honest, is like going to the World Series now this year. It's the first time I've done it in five or six years or whatever for the whole thing. And I'm just going to try and play hold'em tournaments. You know, that's my plan to do that. Um, which, again, I haven't done. You know, I'm just going to okay, right. I'm just going to try and do this because that's actually what I'm good at. Um, you know, what, where I'll stand and fall in terms of how I do will not be being table captain there because I'm going to try and tone that back. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, and I'm going to try and use more of my energy for actually sitting there trying to pick up um information on people. Yeah. You know, because my you know, I'm coming up to fifty, my concentration isn't naturally. I have to work on my concentration. And then to do that, to actually be that aware for the whole of the game, I'm gonna have to make sure all of the stuff I do the rest of the time is real tight. Yeah. You know, so I can't even watch too much television. I have to meet in the gym lots, which you know, I have been doing for the last year and a half. You know, I have to get super fit. I have to make sure that the people I talk to are the right kind of people. I have to make sure whenever I'm not talking to the right kind of people, or I'm at difficult tables during the day, that the energy isn't sucked out of me. I mean, again, yeah. talking to Darren, and a lot of people, you know, they go to Vegas, and the biggest thing is they find themselves burnt out after days yeah. or weeks. And 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 you know, the the reasons for that are really interesting. You know why? But there's there's common themes, so I have to kind of avoid all of that. Yeah. You know, um, and 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 to avoid all of that, the best way to avoid a lot of these things is you figure out <laughs> what are the things which kind of work, you know, for you because it's different for people, but there are some common themes, you know, uh, against that. Yeah, you know, um, so so I, there may be a change in me in terms of table capping, like, Funnily enough, even though it's the thing that's worked really well for me. Yeah, like
2: like I find when like when I'm playing in Ireland, uh, obviously. Um, because I know most of the people who play it tends to be a very social experience and 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 it mm. is very enjoyable but i gen i generally feel i don't probably play my best because I'm too distracted by all the conversation that's going on all the other stuff I actually feel I better I, uh, I okay, play better mission, when
7: Mission accomplished by me <laughs> <laughs> I feel I play
2: better wh- when I go you know to Vegas and I'm sitting at a table where nobody knows me or when I play in France or when I play in the UK and, and not as many people know me um, and I find it much easier to concentrate and like even though you know people go well it's really isn't it really mm. dull to sit at, at the table all day and, and not talk to people it's actually not for me because I'm you know there's enough going on for stuff that I'm looking for, uh, watching people, that, that I actually find that quite interesting. But it is difficult when you actually know the people.
7: So here's a question, then: I'm just trying to find out information myself, right? So this is like, a I interview you. Um, <laughs> the, the, so for a lot of people, so say if we take like 100 people who play sort of a lot on the internet, and they, they play less live, but they're moving into live. So like certainly if you go to the World Series, there's going to be loads of Americans, and they're not playing, Actually, they won't be playing on the internet, but they'll be coming along. But anyway, lots of people will be playing on the internet wherever they're playing, coming along live, especially deeper in the tournaments where it gets stronger, yeah? And how do they experience sort of all of this noise, you know, generally, you know, if there is noise, does that make it more difficult for a lot of them or does it not make a difference?
2: Um, I don't think it makes a massive difference, to be honest, because, like, even when guys are playing at home, it's not an entirely anti-social experience. Mm. They tend to be on Skype talking to people and that there's this new phenomenon on Twitch now where people are actually live streaming themselves, playing, and they're interacting with people who are watching. So, you know, it's it's not like a quiet, they're not. It's not like they're, they play in a cave when they're back home. They, they are okay. used to dealing with that. Yeah. The, the other thing I would say is that like the online guys know each other as well, so it's, it's a social experience for them. Like you will, You'll often get a sit-down at a table and there'll be four young guys there in hoodies and somebody will say what their username is and so, suddenly they're all talking and they all know each other because they play the same mm. games every day.
7: That worries the hell out of me because I feel that like that's that's a serious disadvantage because then they have their own dynamic between them, you know? Sure, yeah, and, good point. And... and, and you they know what their dynamic between them is but you don't yeah you know so so it's that's i mean i, I have to figure out You've got to give me some help. Yeah. I, need I also help. think, I also think on the, yeah. <laughs> I need so much help. Help
0: me. But I, I also think uh, when it comes to what you were saying about, you know, the, maybe the long days and people burn themselves, out, I, I think a lot is maybe understated about the, the, the online guys. If they're, if they're serious grinders, they put in these like 12, mm. 14 hour days yeah. day after It's actually not a different experience. It's still sitting no. in a chair. It might be a more comfortable office chair, but it's still a chair for a long time and they have to just focus for an hour and they get a break every hour for five minutes like you get a break every, whatever, two hours for 20 minutes. But, yeah, I, I actually think a lot of the online guys move into live more successfully than the live guys historically have Absolutely. done online.
7: The, 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 you know, I mean, let's be honest with you. You know, how many guys over the age of 40 are even competitive now? Just, you
0: know. a, just the two guys here in the room with me. I think that's it. Is it? <laughs> well, I don't know. I
7: mean, I'm just I'm waiting to see if I am. You know. I mean. I mean. It, that's 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 going to be interesting. You know. Yeah, it is. It's like
0: Andy. I'm gonna I'm gonna cut you off there because I'm uh, I'm aware of time and you I really, cut me off. I'm
7: gonna cut you off right
0: you there. because because I, I try and create a little gonna bit of excitement. Cut me off. I'm afraid so. I wanna, yeah, I, wanna you you nicely, anyway. I wanna hit you with <laughs> some trivia more I wanna hit you with some trivia. We're okay. just gonna have to move on to the next. We're gonna move. Okay, we're just moving on. Seven seven questions. Neil Channing is our current leaderboard. Uh, I mean, he'd top he'd of the leaderboard right. guy. I think he got five out of seven. So, wow, but these are good. difficult questions. So, you know. But as you said, what did you say to me before we came in here? Uh, knowledge isn't wisdom.
7: Yeah, but in Neil Channing's case, it is.
0: Okay, so. okay. <laughs> he'd be happy to hear that. Okay. <laughs> question one: What years did Stu Unger win the WSOP main event?
7: Eighty and eighty-one.
0: Did he win it another time?
7: Oh, sorry. Oh, I, all three of them. Ninety-seven.
0: Correct. Question two. When you came third in the 2007 Aussie Millions main, which other two Irishmen cashed the event?
7: Uh Fint and Gavin. Correct. And mm, it's one of two. Dave, um, black hair, thin. I think is it that guy?
0: I think it is that guy.
7: Yeah, I just can't remember his second name for the moment. Um but you have to give it to me because I've described him physically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're we, we'll Dave of- Div uh Dave you know, he's he's thin and he's like twenty six and he's, <laughs> well, he's not twenty six anymore, I don't he's think. He's mostly an Omaha player. He's an Omaha Correct. player, yeah? He's an Omaha player, Dave I know, you know he's. He, yeah. Do
0: you want to come back to that one? No, but I have it right.
7: No. Okay, so we have to give it to you, do we? You have to give it to me because <laughs> okay. I've described who he is. You have described him.
0: It's Dave Callahan. Yeah, Dave Callahan. Callahan, yeah, Callahan. Or Hallie,
7: as everybody knows. Yeah, Question Callahan. three. Yeah, so which, that's right, two out of two so far, anyway.
0: <laughs> which grumpy old man said poker exemplifies the worst aspects of capitalism that have made our country so great?
7: Grumpy old man. So it's an American, yeah, obviously. Mm hmm. And he's a grumpy old man. Doyle Brunson?
0: It's not. It's Walter Matthau, one of the grumpy old men with oh, Jack Lemmon. Oh, right.
7: Yeah, I was thinking that. Uh, yeah, was, would, him and Jack Lemmon. God, I could have got that one, actually.
0: Uh, question four. How often will Ace-King suited crack aces? A, 9.5% of the time. B, 10.5% of the time. Or C, 11.5% of the time.
7: What are the options again to them?
0: Nine and a half, ten and a half, or eleven
7: and a half percent? I just percent. discussed this with Dara, right? When his... This <laughs> has got struck by his king and he said this to me. So what is nine and a half, ten and a half... Or eleven and a half? Eleven and a half. Correct. Three yeah. out of Thanks, four. Thanks, Dara. That was Dara, yeah. yeah.
0: Question five. You are fifth in the all-time number of cashers in Ireland, with 84 cashers on the Hendon mob. How many of the top ten are over 40? Two. No, nine out of ten of them are. Dara Davy, Davy is the only one under forty-five. In fact, question right. six, okay. according well, to the, hen- so now you got to you get, gotta get the last two to tie with that. Channing now. Question six, according to the Hendon Mob, who is cashed for more money, Andy Black or Andy Block? Andy Black. It's Andy Block, five point three million to your four point four five. I'm afraid. Right. Question seven, that four point four five million in tournament earnings makes you the winningest Irish tournament player in history. However, for approximately one month earlier this year, you were displaced from this title by who, and why was it reversed?
7: Steve O'Dwyer, he's not really Irish.
0: Correct. Okay, four uh-huh. out of seven. That's pretty good. Well worked out that last one. Andy, listen, thank you so much I for coming in. I didn't even know that. <laughs> so, like,
2: yeah, divine inspiration. That was yeah.
0: brilliant. Listen, thank you so much for coming in. Really appreciate it. A great way for us to end our show. Um, yeah. Sorry, I just have to cut you off there because <laughs> I have to go. <laughs> playing us out tonight are the band whose brilliant music we have reappropriated and bastardised for our theme tune and stings here at the chip race they're a quality band fronted by my good friend Kevin McNamara this is Blind Jackety and Easy Days A big thank you To Annette Fergal Stephen Blind Jackie And of course Andy We're on hiatus For the next few weeks But be sure to follow us On Facebook and Twitter For updates about our next episode From the two Daras and myself Good night And good luck <laughs>